Thank you for being here this evening, and we pray that our time together is beneficial to each of us, and that we praise our God and glorify Him in our presence. There are hundreds of characters in the New Testament, but without fear, I will tell you that Jesus Christ is certainly the greatest of all of those characters. I'm mindful how that in the book of Colossians, in the first chapter in verse 15, that Paul writes about Jesus, and among other things, he says he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews would say he is the expressed image of God. He tells us he's the firstborn of every creature, and the head of the church. You're talking about just people, he's, he's the greatest. You're talking about the church, he's the head. He's the firstborn from the dead, the first one to die and then come alive and never to die again. But more than that, just firstborn signifying he is the greatest of all those that have come from the dead. And then Paul tells us that he says all of these things, that in him he might have the preeminence. All of these things are told to us about Jesus, that he might have preeminence, that we might count him the greatest of all. He's our Savior. He's our example. It is he who we should pattern our life after and whom we should seek to be like. But of the rest of the New Testament characters, some are well known to us like Peter, Andrew, James, John. But then there are some that are not that well known to us like Hermes and Nicholas and Cortes. I want to talk with you a little bit about some New Testament characters this evening, and we're going to talk to you about the lives that they lived. We'll be very brief in our description of these people, but I want you to listen closely, because at the end of the class, or at the end of the sermon, I'm going to ask you a question, and only you will be able to answer it for yourself. It will come from the things that we've talked about. It would be important that you know what we've said and that you've been thinking about these things. I want to begin by talking to you about a thief on the cross. Uh, Matthew, the, or excuse me, Mark, the 15th chapter, in verse 27, we read, And with him, talking about Christ, they crucified two thieves, one on the right hand, the other on the left hand. This is not the thief that we think of most often when we talk about the thief on the cross. This is the other one. And there are some things we don't know about this thief. For instance, we really don't even know which side of Christ he was on when he was crucified. We don't know the specifics of his crime. But we do know that he is called a thief in King James Version in Matthew 27, verse 38, Mark 15, and verse 27. 
He's called a malefactor by Luke in Luke the 23rd chapter in verse 32 and again in verse 39. New King James calls him a robber or criminal. And this word that's used and translated thief or some of these other words, it's the very same word that's used of uh, the thief in the parable of the sower who came in and beat the man and, and left him there for dead. It's a word that means to plunder. But from the fact that he's here and he's about to be crucified and looking at other examples like that one of the Good Samaritan, then it's possible that he was a very violent man. And so he deserved on this occasion to be crucified. But we do know something else about him. We know that he reviled Jesus in Matthew the 27th chapter, verse 39. And remember that he's on the cross and Jesus is on the cross uh, in the middle of him and another thief. But in Matthew 27, verse 39, it says, And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest in, in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priest mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now. And he says, If he will have him, for he said, I am the Son of God. But then listen, The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in their teeth. And so just like all of these other people that are saying, if you're the Son of God, come down off the cross or uh, let God take care of you. You said that you're his son. Somebody said they were hurling words as though they were barbs trying to destroy him who hung on the cross. And as you study the, the accounts, it seems like a little later in the book of Luke in the 23rd chapter in verse 39, it's his words when he says, one of the malefactors which, which hang or railed on him, saying, if thou be the Christ, save thyself. And so he's on the cross with Christ at the same time Christ is. He's about to die. Christ is about to die. But he is railing against Jesus. He has no compassion. And I imagine that all his requests are kind of selfish anyway. And so here's a man that we know is wicked, maybe violent, hanging on a cross, and seemingly he's condemned by Scripture. In the book of 1 Corinthians, in the 6th chapter, in verse 9 through 10, Paul would say, Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor feminine, nor abuse of themselves mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And so when you put all of this together, what you would think is, here is a wicked man who was lost. There's nothing in the text that would indicate that, that anything different than then he is going to meet the maker and be lost at that time. Well, 
let's think about a second character. And this also is a thief on the cross. This is the one we think of most of all when we, we talk about the thief on the cross. And some of the same things that we said about the other man, we could say about him. He's known as a thief. The same word is used, and so it would indicate again that he's a, possibly a very violent man, that he's a lawbreaker in that sense. We know that he too railed at Jesus in the beginning. Look, if you would, again to Matthew, the 27th chapter and verse 44, and listen very closely this time. It says, the thieves, plural, also which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. So it wasn't just the other thief that we talked about that railed against Jesus and was saying things like, if you're the Christ, then save yourself, or if you're the Son of God, save yourself. This man also at some time railed at Jesus. But there's something different. Because we learned that at some point in time, he changed. He evidenced a change in his life or his heart. Listen, if you would now, to the book of Luke in the 23rd chapter, beginning in verse 39. One of the malefactors which hung railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself with and us. But the other one, the one we're talking about now, but the other one answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing that thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you today, Thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now, while he started out railing Jesus just like the other, it's quite often he, or quite obvious that he has a change of heart. And how do you account for it? I don't know that I can. I'm not sure what happened that made him change at this time. Maybe he had heard Jesus before, and I think maybe he had from some of the things that were said. But why now would he change and, and now cry out unto Jesus and ask that he remember him when he comes into the kingdom? Well, he's in a very desperate situation. Maybe the desperation that he's in has now forced him to, to think about it, and now he realizes this is my only hope, and so he changes and calls out to him. Maybe he's heard Jesus look at this crowd and say, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And, and maybe he realizes suddenly, yes, he will forgive me. And so he, he seeks Jesus' forgiveness. Maybe it's the strange events that take place this day. We know that around 9 o'clock, Jesus is put on the cross. We know around noon to 3 o'clock, it turns dark. Maybe it's during that time that this man realizes, hey, this is not just another person hanging on the cross. Maybe he's like the centurion that would see all the things that are happening, and he realizes this is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
you see some things in this man at this time that you certainly don't see in, in the other one, uh, we see. He, for instance, is responsible and accepts the responsibility for his wrongdoings. He says to the other one, he says, we deserve this. But this man never did. We deserve this. I realize that, that we're getting what we really deserve hanging on this cross. He attests to the innocence of, of Jesus. He says, we deserve this, but he said of, of Jesus, he's done nothing amiss. He hasn't done anything that he deserves to be put on the cross. And he apparently has some faith. I mean, he knew of Jesus preaching about the kingdom for him to say, remember me in, in thy kingdom. And he is seeing Jesus at his weakest, it would appear. He's on a cross. And this man is now looking to Jesus and saying, remember me. And in essence saying, save me. Where we hold out little hope for the other thief, for eternity, this thief seemingly is saved. He has the promise of paradise. We read in those words when Jesus said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise, he said. Hades, if we're familiar with it, in Luke the 16th chapter is a place where the dead go. Seemingly is divided into two parts. One is a place of, of torment. The other is a place called Abraham's bosom or a place of comfort. And we know that Jesus went to Hades, and we presume and know, I guess, that he went to that place called paradise. And he's telling that thief, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And so we would say of this thief, he's a wicked man who found salvation. Even at the last moment, he found salvation at this time. The third New Testament character I want you to think about is the rich young ruler. We get this designation, the rich young ruler, by putting all of the biblical accounts together. For instance, in Matthew 19, in verse 22, we're told he was a man that had many possessions or great possessions. In Matthew 19, in verse 22, he's called a young man. In Luke's account, in Luke 18 and verse 18, it is said he was a ruler, probably talking about the fact that he was a ruler of the synagogue. And in a way, here's this rich young ruler. And we can say of him that he has and is inquisitive about good things. He, seek his, he seeks Jesus out on this occasion and wants to know what must I do to have eternal life? So he has some interest in good things. He holds Jesus in high esteem. He comes to Jesus and he calls him things like good master and good teacher. And so he recognizes Jesus and, and holds him up to uh, a high standard, saying he is somebody that's good. And he himself is morally good, seemingly, because you remember Jesus tells him, go and 
do the things that he ought to do. And he says, from my youth up, I've kept the law. What like I yet? And Jesus doesn't challenge him on that and, and begin to name things that he had done wrong. He didn't accuse him of drinking or fornication or any of those things. It would seem that the man was telling the truth when he said, all of these things I've, I've done from my youth up. But Jesus, of course, tells him something else. He tells him that he needs to sell his goods and distribute to the poor and come follow me, he says. And so when you think of this man, you see he goes away sorrowful, and then you think he's a good moral man who was seemingly lost. And I say he's seemingly lost because Jesus makes it quite clear that you can't put possessions before him. You, you can't put others before him. You have passages like the book of Luke in the ninth chapter where he's telling us, you've got to count me greater than all the riches in this world. Or Matthew 6 and 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And now he's saying, let me keep my riches in essence. And if I have to do away with my riches, I'll just go away sorrowful, he says. And so he does. I remind you to keep listening because there's a question at the end of all of these characters. But I want you to consider next Cornelius. We read about Cornelius in the book of Acts in the 10th chapter, and we know that he is uh, a centurion, a Roman soldier that's in charge of 100 men, and he's stationed at Caesarea, which would be uh, about 60 miles northwest of Jerusalem, and apparently thought of pretty well by the Jews. And we know he also is a morally good person, you remember that it tells us that he was a devout man is what the scriptures use to describe him. He's one that fears God with all of his house, the scripture says. So he's a man not only good himself, but he has a good influence and it filters down into his house. It tells us he's a man that gives alms to those that are in need or the poor. And it tells us he prays always. And so he's a very good person. And you remember that the angel comes to him and tells him, you need to send to Joppa and fetch Peter, and that Peter will come and tell you words whereby you might be saved, he says. And so the angel goes and tells Peter to come, or one tells Peter to come to him, and Peter comes, and, and in Acts the 10th chapter, in verses 44 through verse 48, you see Peter uh, talking with him, conversing with him, and this man is listening and hearing and we end up seeing he is a man that hears the gospel and he obeys the gospel. He's baptized into Jesus Christ. And so if you're going to summarize this man, you'd say here's a good man who was saved by the gospel. The other man was a good man too, but he wasn't saved. But here's a good man, moral man, and yet he still needs something else to be saved. And Peter preaches the gospel to him, and he obeys that gospel. And that gospel is to give us hope and to give us salvation. And so we feel like here's a man that was good morally, but recognized that just being good morally was not enough. And so he obeyed the gospel. 
The next character. Think about Judas's character for a moment, if you would. He's a place from, or from a place called Kirith, probably, a city in Judah. And we know that he was the treasurer for the disciples, that he held the basket or the box of money. There's a couple of places that tell us that he was this treasurer, so to speak, or the one that kept the money for the apostles. In Matthew, the 26th chapter, in verse uh, 14, or excuse me, John, the 12th chapter, in verse 6, and then in John, the 13th chapter, in verse 29, both of these places, it says he has the box of money. Uh, one of the times he's talking the case where the ornament had been put on Jesus and, and Judas rises up to say, well, this could have been saved. It, it's worth a lot of money. And it says there, he kept the box. He was the one that had the, was the treasure. And then it tells us later that at the supper that Jesus said, go, do what you're going to do quickly. And they perceived that he was probably just going and buying something because he held the box, it said. And so we know he's the treasurer, kind of. But what he's most known for is that he is the portrayer of Jesus. Look, if you would, to the book of Matthew in the 26th chapter, in verse 14 through 26. It says, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the, high, uh, to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him, talking about Jesus, to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to portray him, talking about Jesus again. When you look at Matthew, the 26th chapter, and verse 47, it says, And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, that's this Judas's character we're talking about, behold, one uh, of them, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whomsoever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. But Jesus said to him, or he said immediately, he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the of the servants, or they struck the servant, or the ear of the servant. Judas sought, it says, an opportunity to betray him. And he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. The very first offer, it seemed like, they made to him. And that he did so, he betrayed him with the kiss, a symbol of friendship and love and hypocrisy. Now, as you continue to read, you would see that there was some remorse on his part. Matthew, the 27th chapter, beginning in verse 3, says, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And so while it tells us that he was remorseful, it's doubtful that he was repentant in the sense of godly sorrow. In fact, as you go on a little bit later, you see he is called the son of perdition. He is the son of, of destruction and, and condemnation, in other words. 
And there's a big difference in just repenting or being sorry that you got called or even sorry that you did something and yet not having godly sorrow, being sorry because you have violated God's law. When you think about Judas, you would think, well, here's a person who feigned discipleship. He pretended to be a disciple But here's one whose heart wasn't pure. He was greedy. He was covetous. And his covetousness led him to betray our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The sixth person. I want you to think about Peter. Peter was at one time a fisherman. In fact, in Matthew, the fourth chapter, in verse 18, Jesus is walking by and he sees Peter and John tending to their nets and washing those nets, so we know he's a fisherman. We know also that he became a part of the inner circle of Jesus. On three different occasions, some were allowed closer to Jesus than the rest of them. Some were carried into the room with Jesus as he raised Jairus, Jairus' daughter. Peter was one of those who was carried with him. One of the three that went to the Mount Transfiguration with Jesus, all of them went some of the way, but Peter went even closer into the Mount with Jesus. And he was one of the three that went the furthest into the garden when Jesus was about to be betrayed and spent that night praying, Peter went closer to him than the most of the other apostles. I think if we talked about Peter, probably one thing that all of us would recognize is that he's an impetuous person. You remember in Matthew, the 14th chapter, when the storm came up and they were in the boat and Jesus was walking on water, it was Peter that said, Lord, if it's you, let me come to you. And he got out of the boat and began to walk. You remember when Jesus was talking to him and said, Who am I? It was Peter that spoke up and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. I think if you just said, Here's the apostles and somebody's going to just blurt out that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Who is it? We'd probably say, Peter. We'd probably guess that if we know him. And then at John, the 18th chapter, in verse 10, at betrayal of Jesus, when Jesus is being betrayed, one of them took out a sword and swung and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. That was Peter. He's an impetuous person, acting sometimes even before he thinks through things. But he's also the disciple that denied the Lord three times. Even after talking with Jesus and Jesus saying, let me talk to you plainly and tell you that I'm going to have to go and die. Peter says, no, Lord, that can't be. And I'll never forsake you. I'll I'll die for you if I have to. But then you remember the trial comes and, and Peter is following afar off. And somebody comes out and says, well, you're one of his disciples. And Peter says, no. And then another one, and Peter says, no. 
and yet a third time, and he says, no. And then he hears the cock crow as, as Jesus had told him he would do, and he begins to weep bitterly, it says, because he realizes that he's just denied the Lord three times. You remember that later Jesus would appear to him, and he would ask Jesus, or Peter, Peter, loveth thou me, Peter? And Peter would say, Lord, you know that I love you. And sometimes people look at it and say, well, Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter answered and said, Lord, you know I phileo you. And the second time, Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I phileo you. And then the third time, Jesus says, Peter, do you phileo me? And Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know this. Some think maybe Jesus is trying to make him think of his failure, and maybe that's it. I thought of that passage a long time, one time, and then it dawned on me, the answer is not in the questions. It's in the answers that's given. And that what Jesus said was, Peter, if you love me, go feed my sheep. And Peter went, fed the sheep. And Peter himself, if tradition has it right, would give his life for Jesus. And tradition has it that when they were going to crucify him, he said, crucify me upside down. I'm not worthy to die like my Lord. And it seems to me like the question agape and phileo that maybe Peter was choosing the word that he thought best. I've illustrated before by saying, you know, if a wife comes to her husband and says, do you agape me or do you love me? And the husband says, well, you know I love you. And she says, yeah, but do you love me? And he says, you know I love you. And she's going to say, well, I know you're a good Christian man and you have my interest in heart and you're going to take care of me. But do you phileo me? You know, when she asks the second or third time, that's not the time to say, yes, I agape you. She's wanting to know, how do you really feel about me? Do you count me as a friend? Do you, do you trust me in all of these things? And so I'm not sure that this questions that Peter had, that, that we really have come to understand exactly what was going on. But the truth of the matter is, the answer is in the answers and his telling him, go feed my sheep. If you love me, Peter, then go feed my sheep. Go do what I've called you to do. And so what would you say about Peter? Well, you'd say he's a, a disciple who denied the Lord, but who returned to serve him, and who did serve him apparently the rest of his life and, and even died for him on this occasion. And so the other character, the next character, is, is John. And there's some similarities to him and Peter. He also had been a fisherman. Again, that passage that Christ comes by and he sees Peter and John. They're out tending to their nets. He, too, is a part of Jesus' inner circle. He was at Jairus' uh, home also when the daughter was healed. He, too, had been up in the mountain of transfiguration 
He too had been deep in the garden when Jesus was praying the night that he was going to be betrayed. And perhaps, perhaps John was the closest of all disciples unto Jesus. I say that because John 19, verse 26 and 27 says, When Jesus therefore saw his mother, this is Jesus on the cross, and he sees his mother, and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold thy son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. In John 21, in verse 20, it speaks of the disciple whom Jesus loved and mentioned that he leaned against Jesus at the Last Supper. And most things that those passages are talking about John and showing how close John was to Jesus. But there's some difference between Peter and John also because wherein Peter in weakness denied Jesus John never denied him that we know of. He always was there for Jesus. And in fact, this John is the one that writes Revelation, and we know from the book of Revelation and that he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And there he received this book that we call Revelation. So we trust that he too is saved. And yet he's a disciple who was always faithful. He was called the same time Peter was, but you never look at his life and say, oh, here's a time that he denied the Lord. He was always faithful to the Lord. Let me just very quickly remind you of the characters that we've talked about and what we said about them. We talked about a thief. He's a wicked man that was lost in his wickedness. We talked about a second thief, a wicked man, but who even at the end repented and seemingly was saved. There's the rich young ruler. He's a morally good man, but he doesn't choose salvation at this time. There's Cornelius. He's a morally good man and recognizes that his goodness by itself can't save him and he obeys the gospel. There's Judas's character, one who feigned discipleship, who marched among all the other apostles, but he really had an evil heart. There's Peter, a disciple who denied the Lord but repented. And there's John, that faithful man, faithful servant. Now here's the question. Which one of these characters is most like you? If you had to pick one of these characters that represents you, which one would you pick? And if you've got that person in mind and you're being honest with yourself and choosing the one that really most likely represents you, second part of that question is, where will you spend eternity? Will you be the wicked person that stays wicked and hence loses your soul? The wicked person that sees there is 
a hope of salvation even when we're wicked because of the great love and forgiveness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Would you turn to him and, and say, remember me and do what he says do? Are you a disciple that really is not a real true disciple, but you're just playing the part and, and you're feigning a heart like a disciple, but it's not really there? Are you a disciple that gets off sometimes, but you come back like Peter? And if the Lord says, do you love me when you come back, how would you answer that question? Or have you started down the road of faithfulness and you have every intention to be faithful to the very best of your ability until the end? Which one represents you? And where will you spend eternity? If you see yourself and you're not really happy with what you see this evening, you can be like that thief that even now can cry out and be saved. Just repent of your sins, be buried with him in baptism, rising up to walk in newness of life. Or if you've done that, then repent of your sin and come back to him like Peter. You're subject to the invitation. We invite you to come as together we stand and sing. Oh,